You know, this Easter season is a time uh, for, for us to resolve our trust in, in God. It, it really is what matters most, what tests our trust. In, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had been formed. They're now in the Garden of Eden. God has given Adam and Eve tremendous authority. He says to them, you can now name the animals. You multiply the land in which I've given you. You can eat anything in the garden except for that tree. The serpent comes. We know the story. He comes to Eve and Adam and says, listen, you know why God doesn't want you to have that forbidden fruit? It's because you'd become like God. And the serpent starts to issue little lies, subtle lies to them. Adam and Eve commit that original sin because they believe that lie. And we know the, the verses that run through our mind when we hear the word sin. All have sinned. All of us are sinners. All fall short of the glory of God. Look at this verse on the screen from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I want you to notice three things right off the get-go here. And today we're talking about temptation. But I want you to notice three things. The tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Well, let's fast forward for a second. The children of of Israel, the ones that were wandering for those 40 years, they were led into the desert. And we know the story. They failed miserably on that trip. That trip should have taken them three weeks, but instead took them 40 years. Those three temptations that we saw with Adam and Eve are the same temptations that tripped up the children of Israel as they are wandering through the desert. Look at this verse from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. And I'm going to read it from a different translation than what's going to be on your screen, but pay attention to what's on your screen there. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world always squeezes out the Father. Practically everything that goes on in this world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world and all its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity i got to be honest with you. I'm fascinated by things. I, I love being curious about things. Discovering new things is not the problem that the author in First John is describing. What he's describing is when our heart turns away from God and our heart begins to worship the things that are all around us, the stuff, the things that we see. Well, look at the next verse. First John 2 verse 16 says this, for everything. Now, we could try to wrestle through different translations. We could do a word study. Everything always means everything in the Bible. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
And the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Are you starting to see a theme here? The three things that tripped up Adam and Eve, the same three things that tripped up the children of Israel as they're walking in the wilderness, are the same three things that Jesus is about to be tempted with in the 40 days of temptation. Luke chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to spend a few minutes in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. That's the most obvious verse in Scripture. He didn't eat for 40 days, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it'll be yours. Verse 8, Jesus said, answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Interesting that Satan's quoting Scripture. Verse 12, Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I want you to notice some things this morning. I hope this will excite you actually to read Scripture. Because uh, there's, there's strings that are always attached to the different stories that happen in Scripture. Here's one of those strings for you. The children of Israel wandered through the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Jesus was sent by God from heaven to be the new Adam, to be the redeemer of all that had been lost in the garden, all that had been given up in the wilderness experience. Jesus was here to redeem it. And so for... Not 40 years, but for 40 days, he's about to be confronted by the enemy of our souls. The enemy that affected Adam and Eve. The enemy that affected the children of Israel. See, Jesus is walking into the desert by himself. Can I tell you something? That nothing will ever be substantial and public until... It's first won in private. Our private battles have to be first won before God will ever launch us into something public. I love that verse 1 from from Luke chapter 4. This story starts with Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus does not tempt us with sin. The scriptures are incredibly clear about that. Jesus is never the tempter, but Jesus will allow us to be tempted. See, the testing of our walk is not for God to somehow evaluate us. 
It's for us to evaluate what God has put in our lives. See, the testing from God is not so that God can look at us and go, they pass or they fail. God already knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The testing of God is so that we can be confident in what God has placed inside of us. Look at verse 2 if you have your Bibles open there. Verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And the devil said to him in verse 2, Hey, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, why don't you just tell this stone to become bread? Then verse 5, we see the Satan saying to him, Hey, come up to this high place and I'll show you all the kingdoms of the world. Notice he says, all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says, I'm going to give you authority and splendor because it's been given to me. I want you to notice that Satan was right. He wasn't lying. He had control of all the kingdoms of the earth because of the sin of Adam. So Satan here is actually telling the truth when he says, I have control of all the kingdoms of the earth. And then we fast track into verse 7 and and Satan keeps going, hey, if you worship me, it'll all be yours. Jesus comes back at scripture with him. Then he puts him on the top of the temple and goes, hey, just throw yourself off. The angels will actually catch you. It says he left him alone at the point until there was a more, what, opportune time to tempt him. That's how our story ended. Let me ask you a simple question this morning. If there were opportune times to test Jesus, is it possible that there might be an opportune time to test us? Are you aware when you're most vulnerable? Are you aware of your physical body? Are you aware when your mind is most tired? Are you aware when you are most vulnerable to temptation? When are you most vulnerable? Maybe after you've worked all week. Maybe on Friday evening when you've done all the things that you needed to do in the week. That is why this story isn't just an Easter story. This is why this story is so important for us as Christ followers. See, Jesus came back with all of those temptations with three scriptures. All those three scriptures are actually found in the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus was here to redeem the mistakes, not only in the Garden of Eden. He was also here to redeem the mistakes of the children of Israel as they wandered through the desert. And the book of Deuteronomy actually tells us that story. Now here's the thing for us first to understand. All three of those temptations that the enemy brought to Jesus were shortcuts. Temptations in our life are simply Satan saying to us, you have a real need, you're hungry. See, it's always a real need. There's always a legitimate need in our life. But what Satan does is he offers us illegitimate ways to meet our legitimate needs. Temptations are simply Satan offering you illegitimate ways to meet your legitimate needs. So the first thing that Jesus was tempted with was the lust of the flesh. 
Look at Eve. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Eve says the fruit is good for food. That's a legitimate need. Some of us, in the rush of this morning, we actually forgot to eat. And we're hungry right now. Your stomach's growling. Hunger is something that's painful. But very few of us ever go very long without feeding ourselves. So Eve says that the fruit is good for food. And then Satan comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Jesus, you have a legitimate need. You've been not eating for 40 days. Aren't you hungry, Jesus? Eve, aren't you hungry? You know what happened in the desert with the Israelites? This is actually found in Exodus 16. The children of Israel are wandering around. They're complaining. They actually say these words, you brought us out of Egypt to let us starve to death in the desert. One morning, they wake up, they come out of their tents, and there were these thin flakes, almost like frosted flakes on the ground. They were good. They had sugar on them. They went out and they ate all of that. Well, after about three or four weeks, guess what the Israelites said? Oh God, seriously. And we're getting tired of this food. Would you, would you bring us out and give us these flakes? But we actually want some meat. So then a quail appears. They eat the quail. And they still complained. Do you see a pattern here? Because it's never enough. Your flesh will always demand more from you than you can give it. Scripture says that our flesh has a desire that can never be met. It's never satisfied. The appetite never gets filled. See, by the way, we can justify our actions because it's a legitimate need. Eve, it's good food. The Israelites, God, why did you do this? Jesus, turn this stone into bread. Now, if we look back at our own lives, away from, from Jesus for a second, many of us in life have taken the shortcut You know what? God is always able to redeem the shortcuts. God is always able. God is brilliant at taking us when we get off the path to get us right back on the path. I don't care how many shortcuts that you've taken. God is able to get you back on the center of his will in the middle of the highway that he has designed for you. Nobody in this room is hopeless. Well, let's keep moving along with those temptations. Then it says that there is the lust of the eye. For when Eve saw the fruit, not only did it have the ability to feed something physical in her body, it also says that it was pleasing. It was something that she wanted. It says it was pleasing to the eyes of Eve. It was something that she desired to have. To Jesus, Satan came to him and said, Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, Jesus was here to redeem, to reclaim what was lost. So when Satan says, hey, Jesus, here, all these kingdoms belong to me and I can give them to anybody that I want. Why don't you just take them, Jesus? 
Friends, Jesus was tempted. Jesus had a, a, a moment in time where he was thinking, I don't have to go to the cross. It means I don't have to go through those three days. I don't have to be resurrected. I can just take them. What's that in life? It's always the shortcut. But that wasn't God's plan for Jesus. Jesus was called to be the living, breathing example to us. Jesus was called to the cross. His death and resurrection were very important. But Satan always comes to us and offers us the shortcut. Do you notice that Eve was looking at something? So often we think that what happens is that it comes into our eyes, we see it, and then it corrupts our heart. The Bible tells us that don't set anything that's evil before you. It is possible that you can see things that might come into your soul and corrupt you, but most often, and this is me speaking from my own life, but most often it's the opposite of what happens. Most often, our hearts have already been corrupted. And our gaze, the things that we see, the things that we begin to worship with our eyes, has already happened in our heart. Typically, we worship objects that our heart has already turned towards. Something happens in our heart first, and then our eyes can't get off of that. Don't blame everything that you see on corrupting your heart. I believe we have to blame our heart for believing what we see. It's a heart issue with God, and we want it now. Here's what the author David in Psalm 119 verse 36 says, Turn my heart toward your ways, your statures, and not toward selfish gain. Notice that David didn't say, Turn my eyes. He said, turn my heart. Then in verse 37, David comes back with the heart, the eyes. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Father, first start with my heart. Help me wrestle this down in my heart so the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes actually is protected from my heart. Well, here's the third temptation. The third temptation that Jesus was facing was the pride of life. Eve said that the fruit will give me wisdom. I'll be like God. I'll be equal to God if I consume this fruit. Satan says to Jesus, throw yourself down. Let the angels catch you. Show off a little bit, Jesus. Come on. Prove to everyone that you're the Messiah. Just jump right over here and you know what's going to happen? Some angels will appear out of nowhere. They'll catch you and the crowd will be wowed by you. They're going to like you, Jesus. They're going to see you in a different light. They're not going to call you that carpenter's son of Nazareth anymore. If the angels appear out of nowhere and catch you as you're falling down to the ground, they would suddenly be aware that you're the Messiah. You wouldn't have to do all this preaching, Jesus. You wouldn't have to go through all those miracles because it would be obvious to everyone you're the Messiah if the angels come out of nowhere and save you. It's a shortcut, friends. 
Remember, the enemy is just offering us shortcuts. The desert, the pride of the children of Israel, what they wrestled with in those 40 years, they would look at each other throughout that story and say, God, we're the chosen children of God. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. I believe God looked at them and said, don't tell me you're the children of of Abraham. If God can, he will make stones and make them children of Abraham. That's not going to get you into heaven just because you're a child of Abraham. You have to choose. See, the pride of life always says, I just need myself. I'm all that I need. God, I used to be so desperate and hungry for you. I know who you are, God. Now go work on somebody else because I'm already there. Have you ever wrestled with that thought? See, we have three choices this morning. In all those three cases that we've illuminated, we have one huge takeaway from this morning. See, all of us go back and forth between the two pendulums The first side of the pendulum is this, that I have an insistence on my independence from God. That's where we all started. God, I can do this all by myself. I don't need God. I don't need a Savior. Friends, we need to take the church mask off. Did we all start out as rebellious know-it-alls? Yep. And it was that insistence, I can do this without God. But then we end up on the other side, hopefully over here, where there's an absolute insistence on full dependence of God. I can't do anything without God helping me. I'm in the hands of God. All of my life is wrapped up by the things of God. I want to be an agent of change for this world. I want to be a worshiper in my heart. I'm insistent on the dependence of God fully. Maybe that rings true for you. But instead of setting up a home over here in the dependence of God, we've just kind of pitched a tent. That just in case things don't work out, I can pack it up and throw it back in my car and I can head over here. Friends, I don't want to put down a temporary tent. I need to put down a house and actually live there. I don't want anything temporary about my existence in this place. You know this about going back and forth in your mind? The temptation is to come back and forth. Maybe you start to live over here a little longer than you used to, but the enemy is looking like in verse 13 for an opportune time when he says into your mind, I can do this without God. It's up to you this morning to decide where you are. Do you have absolute insistence on your independence from God or do you have absolute insistence on your dependence on God? If you're living over here, these temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, I don't care how many times he throws the same old lies at me, it doesn't matter, they fall off of me. But when you camp over here, and you begin to do it on your own, when you start to live life thinking you can do it by yourself, that's when you're vulnerable. Go back to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
See, I'm trying to get us all to a place where we're always living by the Holy Spirit. Because I know this about people who are continually living by the Holy Spirit. They tend not to make bad choices often. Do they sin? Yep. Will they sin? Yep. It's people that are aware of whether or not they're living according to the Holy Spirit that are welcoming the Holy Spirit into their lives on a daily, if not hourly basis, they're the ones that say, I need God. And here's the promise that Jesus said in John 6, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Friends, in other words, it is possible. Theologically, I think it's possible for us all not to fall into deception. Where Jesus wouldn't have said that. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. So today, where are you living? Are you living over here in the independence Or are you living over here in the dependence? Let me pray. God, as we walk into communion, we're reminded of the power of the story. Not a story that's make-believe. Not a story that just looks really good in a skit. But we're reminded of the great power that is found in you. We're humbled that you took on the penalty of our sin so that we could be restored back to you. Lord, if I said anything that wasn't of you, take it from my friends' minds. If you used me in a small way to encourage my friends, make it about the Holy Spirit that prompts, guides, and leads. We love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. One of the, the great things with, with communion, one of the really cool things with communion is it's kind of a recalibration for us. You know, none of you had to bring your own elements. That would have been quite a, an event if we asked you to bring your own elements. Uh, during my wedding to my wife Michelle almost 29 years ago, one of the parts of our ceremony was to have communion together. Well, it was great in the rehearsal, reminding ourselves, okay, we got to grab the elements, but we forgot the elements. So one of my, my friends in the wedding party thought, oh, Matt must just be nervous. So he brought me a Tupperware glass of lemonade. And we had communion with lemonade and a bun, a ham sandwich that we took off the ham, and that was communion. <laughs> And for us, what communion simply meant was us going, God, you're God, and I'm not. And a lot of times, this is what this whole sacrament is, is just us going, God, you're God, and I'm, I'm not. And that needs to become a pattern in our life when, when Jesus, uh, you know, took the elements with his, with his disciples, he, he was really excited and he knew the pain that was coming. 
In one passage in the Gospels, it says that he goes, I, I have eagerly waited for this. Because God's in a, a God who longs to have relationship with you. If you don't have a relationship with God, I don't think there would be a better time than at communion to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. And so the communion table's open for all of us. It doesn't matter what denom you are from. It doesn't matter what family background you have. It doesn't matter if you've been here for 30 years or you've been here for two weeks. Communion is open for everyone. And we take communion just so that we can look at each other and go, our God's alive, he's not dead. We proclaim it, as Paul says, till he comes again. Uh, and so today we have that great privilege. If you want to peel off the, the, the layer at the top and take out the bread, this is the, the physical part of this whole ceremony, celebration, act. Jesus passed around bread. Bread was really common. They would actually use it as utensils. And so bread was a really important piece in the communion celebration. And so Jesus took the bread and he said, guys, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so I'd encourage you just to break the bread just as a symbol that his body was broken. Let's take together, knowing that our God's not dead, he's alive. Let's take together. The disciples were thrown off by that. They didn't understand that. His body broken, what's this going to mean? And so Jesus then took the cup and he said, guys, this is going to represent the the blood of the new covenant. This is going to be the the ultimate sacrifice. You know, the, the blood that was brought always with the animals, the perfect animal, the, I'm going to be that. And, and so Jesus took the cup and he said, you know what? Drink this in remembrance of me, knowing that this is going to usher in a whole new relationship with my father. So let's take that together. Lord, we celebrate the gift of communion. We proclaim that you're a God who is not dead. You are alive. And we celebrate that. We love you. We adore you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. But we also do something really exciting on communion. We're going to take a benevolent offering. Now, a benevolent offering just allows us to actually be the church when we need to be the church. There's all kinds of needs that happen. Some needs happen inside the church. Some needs happen outside the church. An outside need that happens in the church is just somebody going, my whole life has fallen apart and I just need food. And we are reminded that Jesus tells us, if you have a coat and see somebody that needs a coat, you give your coat. And so a benevolent offering just enables us to bless our community because we've been so blessed. And so the ushers are going to come and you can throw some of your loose change in there. You can write a check if you want to, but this just enables us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we'll do this each time we gather for communion, just as a reminder of we're thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, but we're also thankful 
that he calls us to be agents of restoration to a world that desperately needs it. 